Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment podcast. Today, we are uh, blessed to have Brett McCabe on, and Brett has an amazing story going from working a normal job to getting the opportunity to start coaching uh, PGA golfers and also sports performance coaching at the University of Alabama. I hope you enjoy his story. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, another episode of uh, Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. Today, I have Brett McCabe. Uh, very honored to have him. Brett's got a phenomenal story from being a national champion himself to now helping coach and mentor national champions. Uh, Brett focuses so much on kind of the personal development, personal growth, and then also helping athletes find the, their greatest potential and how they can do um, their sport and their uh, opportunities in the most efficient way. And so uh, today um, we'll talk about that. But once again, uh, who knew in the moment, the premise of it is in the small moments, oftentimes we don't know the magnitude that they're going to have in our lives. And so they oftentimes end up being pivotal moments that lead us in a new direction that maybe we weren't certain was going to happen, but only in hindsight can we really connect those. So Brett, thanks so much for being on today. Thanks for having me. Uh, great concept and, and really a, you know, a really cool, insightful idea. Absolutely. So thinking about it from your standpoint, I know one thing that, uh, you know, really kind of started you down the road of baseball, which is a very impactful uh, sport in your life was your, your dad had played baseball uh, in college. And so, you know, talk a little bit about that and how, you know, having a dad that played collegiate baseball, you know, impacted you and uh, really got you started to want wanting to play baseball. Yeah, you know, my dad I was an only child and, and my dad was probably at the time a little bit older to have kids um, as first child and being just me. Um, he was 32. He was in the military. He was in the Air Force and spent the first 10 years of his career in the Air Force as pretty much a bachelor, traveling all over the world and doing different things. And uh, when he got married, um, uh, in fact, my parents were told they weren't going to be able to have kids. Oh, wow. um, and they were fortunate enough. And and I was born. And, and, and so we, when I was young, we always, you know, we, we would always watch sports together. We'd always do things together. Even when I was, I can remember living in the Philippines, we were, I was in first and second grade in the Philippines. And this is obviously before cable, this is 1978, 1979. And we'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning to watch Monday night football. And of course I wouldn't make it very long and I'd fall back asleep. I could maybe make it through the first quarter, but he would watch it and he'd get up and he'd go fly or whatever. And, um, and so we were always sports and, and heavy sports. And um, my dad just was a baseball player in college. He played at the University of Toledo. He was a catcher. And so I, I just, you know, probably followed in his footsteps. And, you know, I played out anything, anything with a ball, anything with a racket I played. And, and when you're stationed overseas, um, the thing is, you know, you, you, especially in a place like the Philippines, you're very involved in the base and you stay on those in the base and, and the bases are for people who are not in the military, uh, at least back in the late seventies, early eighties, the bases were really like the hub. I mean, they had the equivalent of a Walmart, they had equivalent of a grocery store all on the campus and huge rec centers and things like that. They, they just, they, they made it as home feeling as you possibly could. And so you know, you'd have youth leagues and you play baseball and football and soccer and different things. And I yeah. would play soccer and, I was never really a big football guy. Um, I wasn't super aggressive. Uh, I got much more aggressive as I got older. I think I was just a late bloomer. Yeah. But, um, you know, we would play in the backyard and you'd play baseball and you'd play and living in the Philippines. I mean, it's, it's like living in Hawaii with the same climate. I mean, there's never a bad day if it just yeah. doesn't rain. And, um, and then so I'd play and, you know, we'd go to the ballpark. And my dad used to, when I got a little bit older, he would, um, his coach in college used to hit pop flies with a tennis ball with a baseball with a double strung tennis racket. So he just took a tennis ball, a tennis racket, and would go in the backyard and hit pop flies. And next thing you know, every kid in the neighborhood's over there and we're playing catch. And, yeah. Um, and our backyards at the, when we moved back to the States, our backyard um, backed up to another neighbor's yard. And so we had two backyards with no fence. And so that became the ball yard for all the kids in the neighborhood. And here in the military, the vast majority of people who live in your neighborhood are military. Yeah. And so you've moved from city to city or base to base together. And so we just played in the backyard and every day after school, and this was a time before teachers gave homework, you know, five hours a night and you go, you come home. And the first thing you did is, you know, you tell your mom, you're riding over to so-and-so's house and we play in the backyard. And yeah. I think 
learning to play in the backyard was great. My dad was never a, um, a super aggressive father with regards to mechanics or coaching or teaching. He would always coach a team, but he would always, when he got out of the military, we moved, you know, you'd move into a town and they'd have this legacy program, right? The same kids moved up through the program and I was never selected for those. And um, because we didn't know who to go to, we'd just sign up somewhere. My dad would coach, but my dad would always take the teams. He always wanted the kids that didn't make other squads. And I can remember having a second baseman who was a ba- it was a member of the band and he had never played baseball for it. And seventh grade decided he wanted to play. And my dad was like, he's going to play on my team. Yeah. My dad would keep a chart of how many innings every kid played on the team to make sure that it was equitable. Every Got kid it. started the same amount of games, everything, because it wasn't about winning rings. It was about teaching the game and the elements. And it was a great experience for me. Yeah. You know, I never was on winning teams growing up. Um, it wasn't until I was selected to some you know, like all-star teams my dad did an amazing job of always saying, look, if you want to go out and throw, if you want to go out and catch fly balls, I'll do it. Yeah. But I'm not going to ask you to go do it. So right. it has to be your idea. And, 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 and I think that was wonderful for me because it allowed me to, you know, find my own way. Yeah. And I, I loved the game. I wanted to be out there. I wanted to do things. I wanted to play um, anything I could do to play outside. I would do and in playing, learning to play the game in the backyard. And he would help me with mechanics and stuff like that. But, you know, having him as a coach and having him as a, the way he did things, it was just a very positive, um, uh, you know, environment to learn to play. And, 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 you know, I got to play and, and fortunate enough to, you know, play at a very high level because of it. Yeah. So something that I think is intriguing from that is one, you know, Hey, you develop the love of the game first, right? I think so frequently you see, you know, parents today that, you know, have, you know, Timmy out there at seven years old and he's got to master this, you know, specific skill. And I think, you know, that's a awesome, you know, reminder, Hey, you know, develop a love for the game and, and you'll develop the skills because you want to be out there doing it. Yeah. Now, or go I, ahead. I think there was a bigger thing to that too, is when we yeah. moved to St. Louis outside of St. Louis, when, um, that's where he retired from, but you know, they had the St. Louis Cardinals and, yeah. you know, I'd never been to a major league baseball game before. I'd never been to a major league sporting event and we would go to baseball games and we go to St. Louis blues hockey games. And yeah. at the time they had the St. Louis steamers, which was an indoor soccer league. And we'd go to those. And, you know, I can remember the great things of coming home and getting my homework done, getting in the car. And, you know, we just go to a, a game and we moved to Dallas. So we'd go see the Texas Rangers. They sucked back then. So you could <laughs> show up on the day of the game and have great seats. And it was just, that's what we did. And, yeah. and, you know, I, I, I think that that is such a cool experience because I got to see the game and I got to watch the game from a different perspective and, and I got to be a part of the game. And, and also too, you know, we, we look at youth sports right now and we're hyper doing it. It's like, Hey, I got practice four days a week. Right. No, we had practice two days a week, but the other five were free play yep. and you learn to play, but in kids today, and I'm not saying this as an old person, but like as kids, I mean, with, with the reality of, there's a couple of realities in society that make it difficult. We don't ride bikes to neighbor's houses anymore. There's a risk of being abducted, right? <laughs> I mean, we've seen enough of those videos with the white panel vans. Yeah. Um, but there, there was, there was backyard play. You go out in a backyard. Now, if you see kids outside playing, you think they're almost in trouble. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, but back then it was, you know, how did you know to come home? The streetlights came on yeah. or you could hear one of your dad's whistles. Um, yeah. And that's what we did. And I think that's missing. And if I, I think all, all leagues should have free play time, which they have coaching, but they have time where it's drop in free play yep. and it's pickup games and it's pickup basketball games, it's pickup football, it's, you know, flag football, it's pickup baseball. And, and you know what, you learn to play baseball without a right fielder. You learn to play without a third baseman. Yep. It's what it is. I mean, you know, you learn to play the game and, and you figure it out. And I think that's critically important. Absolutely. No, I, I agree with you hundred percent on that. So as, as we parlay from, you know, kind of um, youth sports into high school, you know, I'd love to sit here and say, as the story goes, you know, Brett was a starter all four years and, you know, just all stayed each and every year, but talk a little bit about that experience of it really was kind of a delayed, um, you know, opportunity for you to really show you, you know, how good you were. Yeah. We moved to Baton Rouge in the summer, before my eighth grade year, my dad got a new job in Baton Rouge after he got out of the Air Force and he was a pharmacist. So he moved, um, he was a navigator in the Air Force, but he went back into pharmacy when he retired and he took a job in Baton Rouge and he moved down there in the summer going into my eighth grade year. 
and Baton Rouge school system is pretty, pretty difficult. And um, so you go to private schools and private schools have waiting lists. And, and so I was fortunate enough to get into not the one in our neighborhood, but one that was kind of on the skirts of town. And it was, I would say it was more country. Um, It was more rural. It's only a couple of miles from where we were, but it was, it was not one of the prestigious feeder schools. Right. Yeah. And, um, but it was a good school. It was great for me for one year. I had a chance to change schools after, you know, going into my last semester in eighth grade. And I just chose not to probably, you know, it would have been a better thing to do, but so not knowing I played baseball, my eighth grade year did very well, not in the team. We didn't have team sports then, um, for baseball, but we, um, you know, and then I went to high school. We didn't have a freshman team, but I didn't know they had a freshman summer team that was a independent, but highly recommended. Yeah. Played for another high school, uh, another summer league. I didn't know. Mm. And so I was not on that team. And um, so then going into my sophomore year, when everybody tries out for junior varsity, I went out for tryouts and I got the flu and missed um, tryouts. And the coach uh, gave me an opportunity to come in and pitch. And I'm sure they had scouted and seen that I was pitching the year before in all-star games and stuff like that. Yeah. And not that I was a high pick by any means, but he brought me on the team and and then, you know, I pitched a little bit that year. I was also super young and grew super late. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was way behind the growth curve and the maturation curve. And I went in and um, played a little bit and then played some, played very little over the summer. I was on the team, but I, I was more of a bullpen catcher, catching batting practice in the hot summers of Louisiana. And so I would never play in the games. And I mean, I, I played very, very little. I mean, like very, very little. And the next year came around, they decided to hold me back and play junior varsity because I was young enough to play in the summer junior varsity as a junior going into my senior year. And so I did that and kind of started to grow and started to blossom then and had a lot of success. And it was the best thing that happened for me because I was able to get confidence. Went up to the varsity for my senior year. I was the third pitcher. Yeah. Um, First, our second pitcher got sick and ended up having to miss the year. Um, and I slid into the second person's role and, um, did well enough to, to, for us to do well. The top pitcher was a much more heralded high school pitcher and went to Mississippi state. And at the last minute I had this really cool offer to offer to go to LSU and my high school career, uh, you know, I went to this fantastic Baton Rouge high school, uh, school by the name of Catholic high school, highly prestigious, um, very demanding, all boys Catholic school, um, I was not very popular in high school. I didn't know many people. I didn't know many of the girls at the girls' school. The joke when we went back to our, I guess by now is our 20th reunion, we went back and my wife knew more of the people in my school than I did. Um, and we went back and it was a completely different experience for me at the 20 year than it was at the going through it. Yeah. But I'm still very tied to it, still very close to it. I loved the school, but it just was not, I didn't have that that wonderful high school experience. Um, I was pretty young mentally. I was pretty young for maturation. Um, I was an only child. I was a loner. Um, I just wanted to play ball, but I was never really in any of the in groups. And I, near the end I did, I I started breaking through and probably my senior year, I kind of got into my, the second semester of my senior year, I kind of found my rhythm. Um, and then of course we, we graduated, but I can't sit here and tell you this great glorious story of me wearing my letterman's jacket from high school. I don't even think I got a letterman's jacket in high school <laughs> because by the time I earned it, I was already gone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. So, so, so a question I do have, you know, uh, talking about the opportunity or the phone call from LSU and the opportunity to, you know, walk on there. Um, did you have other offers that you were considering at maybe, you know, smaller universities or how yeah. did that play out for you? You know, I was going to go to, I think I was going to go to LSU regardless. Okay. Um, it, it, worst case was I was just going to go to school. Um, but the I had an offer to go to Loyola of New Orleans, which was a I think a Division three school. Yeah. Um, I had an offer to go to like I want to say I got a letter for the baseball coach at Yale, but I mean I couldn't afford to go to Yale. Yeah. Um, and and that was more along the lines of hey, if you're interested and you qualify, you actually you know you qualify for the school, but you know whatever. Um, so that didn't that wasn't really a, a an option. Tulane had showed some interest early. Um, but it was, that was about it. And I would say maybe, yeah, that was probably it. And um, what happened was one of a friend of ours was coach Bertman's secretary, which I didn't know. 
Okay. And she put my folder on his desk and said, this may be a kid that you want to take a chance on. And it was a really cool thing. Yeah, she did that. And, uh, and he did and he called me into the office and uh, my dad and I went down there and we had a really nice time and, and uh, had a good conversation. And of course, when he gave me the offer, I mean, I I had no other offers. I mean, it wasn't like I was going anywhere else. I mean, this was, this was shocking. And, you know, I remember driving when we left the university and stopped at a gas station to make a payphone call to my mom. Um, uh, you know, and told her what was going on. I mean, it was like, this is the craziest thing ever. Um, and after that, I mean, it was, it was, I'm not going to say it was easy either, but it was really shocking to, to be there. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not really telling a story that I was this super highly recruited kid. I didn't go on any recruiting trips. I didn't anything. I mean, it's kind of comical when you really think about it. Yeah. Well, so what a phenomenal moment that, yeah, the, uh, the friend would help help you out and at least yep. put it on there. But I think that also just speaks a ton about you and the work ethic you had shown, right? Uh, not, not everyone was going to get that same opportunity. So Yeah, I don't know if it was work ethic or just pure luck. I mean, really, um, I, you know, I, I would love to say I worked hard. Um, you know, my in the time in Baton Rouge, there was a strength and conditioning coach who, who was a foundational um, mentor for a lot of the early strength and conditioning coaches across the country. Okay. He was a, um, he trained Olympian lifters. And my dad set me up with him going into my senior year. And I went, I did the absolute minimum. I mean, I just, I hated it. Yeah. So I look back at that and I'm like, man, I had the greatest opportunities. I just went through the motions. I love the game. Yeah. Loved everything about the game. I love it. I didn't necessarily enjoy the running. I didn't enjoy the exercise. Never enjoyed the weight room until I got a little bit older. Um, But it was, uh, yeah, it was crazy. Phenomenal. So as you head off to LSU, um, you're, you're joining a, a phenomenal program and you have some early successes. So I'd love for you to talk about, you know, those first couple of years and the team success and everything there. But then I also want to make sure that you talk about the, uh, the game that you've highlighted in March of 1994 as one of the sure. most pivotal moments uh, of your playing career. Yeah. Pivotal moments of my life. I mean, yeah. I, I went to LSU as a, uh, that year in 19, um, summer, summer and fall of 1990. Um, they had just come off of a third place finish in the college world series and had a, the, the vast majority of their team coming back. And they were, um, at that time, the, the growing, and if you're, if you know anything about South Baton Rouge or Baton Rouge and South Louisiana, at that time, LSU football was pretty much irrelevant. Uh, Shaq was there. Chris Jackson was there. Stanley Robinson basketball, they were pretty loaded, but there was this really big explosion going on with LSU baseball. And it became the must-have ticket in town, and it was fun, and it was, it was cultural, and it was—I mean, it was just—it was just taking over the city. Mm-hmm. So I show up, and I, you know, I've been watching these kids on on ESPN and stuff, and here I am in the same locker room with them, and it was surreal. Um, and I and I was very fortunate. I had a, a mentor um, on that team who was our uh, one of our starting. It was a, probably our ace on that team who took me under his wing, and because of playing golf together and hanging out. And I think we had the same interests and, and, uh, he, he just really looked out for me and, and which was really cool. And, um, we won the national title that year and got to go to the white house and do some things that were really cool. Um, and then came back for the next year and it wasn't going very well. Um, I was struggling and I was also, you know, enjoying college a little too much. Um, and, um, you know, probably dating the wrong person and, you know, you just, you, you'd make those mistakes in college. And, yep. um, I got mono missed six weeks of the season with mono and, uh, came back for the postseason knowing that I couldn't play. Uh, I hadn't been cleared, but I could, um, and not that I was going to play, I wasn't good enough, but that summer I had to stay around Baton Rouge to st- get eligible again. And, I had missed six weeks of class. I mean, I, I had a really, really bad case of mono. And um, I spent that summer just in the weight room and got really, really strong and loved it and was playing in some uh, regional baseball, like beer league baseball leagues. Yeah. And with a bunch of former LSU baseball players that were just reliving and they were playing opposite positions than they'd ever played, right? Our catcher yeah. was a former pitcher on our team that I played with. And <laughs> our shortstop was an outfielder. I mean, it was just like, hey, this is fun and we're going to go play the game. Yeah. And I was able to pitch and I just got a tremendous amount of confidence and came back in that fall 
and we had a delay in the fall season because of some uh, some ground and some uh, stadium renovations they were doing. And so I come back and I just game is easy. I mean, it's like super easy. I'm yeah. throwing hard. I'm feeling confident. I'm in great shape. I'd broken up with that girl. Um, I was really happy. You know, I felt proud. And so went through the fall season. I just had tremendous success and yeah. was having scout cards filled out. You name it. It was fun. And, and then I injured my shoulder with like a case of, you know, I want to say tendonitis in my shoulder. If you've ever had shoulder tendonitis, it feels like you've got a hot knife going through the front of your shoulder. And, um, it was probably, um, you know, what, what, what you would look at as like a torn labrum into, yeah. you know, now, and one of the docs at Andrews has looked at it and said, Oh yeah, you tore your labrum. And, um, but I, you know, I, I wanted to play and I thought it was tendonitis and tried to push through it and ended up changing my throwing motion and, um, changing what I did. And I lost my mechanics and because you know when you it's, it's like somebody changing the way you walk you you do it so naturally for so long you don't really think about it and now i couldn't remember how to do it and that sucks and and so we win the national title in 93 i pitch very little i go play summer ball come back i have the worst fall of my life i can't find my mechanics i can't recreate what i did 12 months prior it's just awful and uh i go and we start the season and I'm way down the list. Like I'm not even relevant anymore. And found a little something in the bullpen. Coach liked it. I kept working it. I went into a couple early games, did very well. One of the problems I had is when I would go back out after an inning, I, I was always a reliever. Even high school, I loved to relieve. Yeah. When I came back in to start the next inning out, I was I would always struggle because I couldn't get the first couple guys out. And I was I was always playing somewhat passive. And I was trying not to make a mistake early in my inning. And we were playing TCU. It was March of 1994. And Nolan Ryan was there at the game, who was my idol growing up. His son was our start, was the guy that was starting against us. And probably in about the fifth or sixth inning, I came in relief with like a bases loaded jam and nobody out. And I come in relief and I get out of the inning. And it was... I was really pumped. I was really excited. And, and when you can get out of an inning like that with no runs scored, it's massive. And that's what I did. And I came running off the field and, and coach grabs me at the white lines and he's like, look, you know, you want the good news or the bad news. And I was like, you yeah, know, it's good news. Yeah. And he's like, it's the best inning I've ever seen you pitch. But he said, if you walk this next batter, I'm taking you out of the game. And as a pitcher, you never want that negative thought. You never want that fear of losing mechanics and command. And, and in truth, I always struggled with command. I always struggled with the freedom to pitch. I, I would go in the backyard in high school before I'd pitch a summer league game and throw in the backyard to see if I had the mechanics that day. And, and, and that looking back at what I do now, that was such a flawed way of thinking. Yeah. But I just didn't believe in what I had. And I, 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 I needed it to be perfect, to be good. Mm. And, um, and so I went in the dugout and I sat there and I was miserable. And I, you know, I, I'm sitting up there obsessing about not walking the first batter and, we, you know, I go back out on the mound and I'll walk the batter on four pitches and he takes me out. And after the game, I go and talk to my dad and he's like, what happened? I told him and he's like, well, you know, you don't walk the leadoff batter. I mean, it's, you've got a pitch. And the next day, it was a beautiful day in March. They sent the pitchers that had thrown the night before to a, a clinic offsite. We're driving back, listening to the game and our starting pitchers in trouble. And we're eating hamburgers from McDonald's and come in the stadium and, and, I've got tennis shoes on. I don't have any of my undergarments on. I, mean, I was told I wasn't going to pitch. I was going to sit in the stands and right. watch a baseball game, right? Yeah. And as soon as I walk in the stadium, the equipment manager grabs me and is like, go get loose. Um, I was like, you got to be kidding me. So <laughs> there are my spikes on. I go in the bullpen. I get loose. I go in the game. I get out of another massive jam. I was good at that. And I come off the field and gives me the same scenario. And, and, you know, at the time, it felt like the worst thing a coach could ever do to me. He yeah. wasn't giving me a chance. He wasn't giving me the opportunity. He didn't believe in me. And what happened was I did walk the batter again, and he left me in, and the next guy hits a double. The problem with it was I didn't I, – I wanted him to believe in me right. so that I could work through my own problem. Mm -hmm. The problem was I didn't believe in myself. Yep. And I didn't believe that I could actually have success. And there was a part of me that didn't really believe in my ability because after I'd been injured, I'd lost some stuff. 
but I went back and, and I, I worked with this guy who, who was helping me going into that year and, and, um, mentally and and we we had a long talk about it and we we devised a game plan instead of playing away from what you feared we would go all in on what i desired and that was a very critical point for me because it made me put my butt on the line it made me be fully vulnerable and yet that's when i had the most success and so the story goes on and and i had a lot of success that year and pitched in the world series and and had a great run pitched my senior year but if it wasn't for that night in that those two days in March, I wouldn't be doing this today. Yeah, I wouldn't have found myself. I wouldn't have believed in what was important to me. I wouldn't have, and I and I look back at that as painful as those two days were because I felt like I was being picked on. I felt like I was being uh, marginalized a little bit. I felt like he had it out for me. He didn't trust me. He did exactly what I needed. Mm. And to your point of the the big moments that happen, you know, I look at things in my life. And if it wasn't for that day, I, I don't know what I'd be doing. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't be doing this. And it opened my eyes to a series of events that started. One was about believing in myself. And, and that, that's always been a, a battle for me is to believe that I can handle the what if. Yeah. Um, and, and I've had to balance that many, many times in my life. But it's also forced me to fight for what I wanted. And mm -hmm you know, I think I would have been fine in any business, but I would always lived unhappy in whatever I chose to do. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it was not an easy conversation to hear, but it was a critical conversation that I needed to listen to. Yeah. So there, there's a couple of things I'd love to ask and hear kind of your perspective from that moment, but also all everything you've learned since then and how you coach people. So first would be, you know, how do you encourage people, especially athletes, you know, uh, business professionals, whoever it might be, uh, to have confidence in themselves today? Is there certain things that you help them walk through? Are there certain fears that you help them face to kind of, you know, overcome that and gain the confidence? Or how do you do that with people today? You know, confidence is a tough one, right? Because yeah. you don't know you really have it until you don't have it. Right. And then you can look back and realize you're missing it. Yeah. Um, the best thing about confidence is the belief that you can handle whatever happens. Mm. If you believe that you can face whatever impending challenge you have in front of you and you can sustain it, doesn't mean you can succeed with it, but you can stand in the fight and give it everything you have. That's confidence to me, yep. okay, is to keep showing up. You don't have to be confident to be successful. You don't have to be confident to play well. You don't have, it helps. Yep. And results don't really create confidence. Right. And people will say, oh yeah, it does. No, because if you, if you didn't believe you were confident to do a business deal and you went out and got lucky and got one, the first thing you would say is I got to do it again. Yep. You'll, you'll change the game. And, and so when I, when we think about confidence to me, it's, it's about showing up yeah. and giving it everything you have. The true confidence is I can give everything I have and be okay with the outcome. Yep. And the belief that I have is that I can handle it. Yeah. Does it, doesn't mean it's going to go my way. Doesn't mean I'm going to like it. But if I'm okay with that, then I can let it go. And I work with my clients, my high-level clients. I work with my business executives. I work with my, my youth. Um, the juniors that I work with, they've been taught their entire life that they should be successful and they can have anything they want. And when they struggle, they think there's something wrong with themselves. Mm. And so you got to teach them that the struggle is important, that the challenge is important. I don't want people to fail. I, I hate saying you got to fail to succeed. I hate that. Yep. Um, I want you to succeed and win every moment you're in, but I want you to believe that you are the one that can do it. And you can always find something within you to meet that challenge. Yes. Um, I don't think you have to fail, you know, but we are good at failing. I don't think we fear yeah. failing. I don't, I don't yeah. think we fear failing. I think we fear the moment we realized we failed. Yes. Once we fail, then it's like, okay, well, let's get back to work. Mm -hmm. That's good. I, uh, I think something that's very interesting too is, and you know, you've had great accomplishments and great successes, but when you really reflect on, uh, you know, the end result, oftentimes mm -hmm. that moment or that accolade, it's exciting, but you, you find that you enjoyed the process more, right? You know, all the small moments or the things that added up to getting that accolade. Well, I think what I miss the most about playing ball um, in college baseball is a lot different than pro baseball. I mean, unless you're at the very top level, 
um, college baseball, I missed the road trips. I missed the, the fights. I missed the yeah. fights in the locker room. I mean, I really do. It sounds crazy. Um, I miss the five, 10 minutes before everybody leaves the locker room, you're shoot, shoot, uh, sitting around shooting the bull. Yep. But I also miss the battle. I miss the battle of trying to find your way through something. I miss the battle of looking at a squat rack and not knowing you could get it up. Yep. Um, I miss that. And I think to your point, right? Success is fleeting. Success, success has a very short-term impact on our brain. Yep. Failure has a very long-term impact on our brain. And, and there's a reason for that. One is we can never gloat and be content with the success that we have. We always need to push for more because if we did, we would become at risk in our society. Mm. On the flip side of that, failure is like a poison. You have to know where you fail so you don't repeat those same lessons. If you continually repeat the same lessons, then you know, you're probably not catching it. Right, like, right. Uh, yo, like, hello, there's something wrong here. Yeah. Um, so what I enjoy and what I love people to do is to be fully immersed in the nastiness of it mm. and be okay with it. It's, 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 it's a hard day's work when you come home and you're filthy, you're worn out. You know, we used to judge a great baseball player by how dirty they got. Um, it's the same way in, in any kind of accolade, any kind of sport. How much are you willing to invest yourself in it and get fully immersed by it? Yep. You do that. That's the fun thing. Um, you know, I had a conversation with a couple coaches and parents last night about playing college sports or playing whatever. And I said, you know, we, as parents, we want all our kids to enjoy that, but we don't really always know what they're going into. Right. Um, it's a, it's a brutal, brutal side. It's a lot of fun yep. when you look back at it. Yep. I don't know many people who look at it and go, this is so much fun. Right. And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say, well, I did it and y'all shouldn't do it. That's not what I'm saying. We see it on the outside as glorious. You don't see the sacrifices, the difficulties, the long hours that are made. And so as parents, we want that for our kids, but it's not always the right thing. And, and the journey is really difficult. And, um, I, I didn't succeed at it the way I wanted to. I wanted to go play professional baseball. Wasn't good enough. My, my journey stopped, but now I work with athletes, in that setting. And I'll tell you, they are fully, you know, they are vulnerable. They're exposed. They're raw. They're, they're tough. And, and to your point, they're going to all look back and go, that was a really great time in my life. Yes. You're in the middle of it. They're having a whole lot of fun with it. I I can attest to that. Today's not about me, but I'll tell you. Uh, So I played college basketball and uh, you know, I really thought that, you know, I was going to be the guy I was going to have this phenomenal career. And yep. I caught myself being a great team player, but guess what, what it's allowed me to do in my professional career now, after 100%. the fact, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be in the workplace who I am without having right. had that four years of collegiate experience. It's like, it's like studying for tests, right? You know, kids will always say, why do we have to have final exams? <laughs> because you got to put in the sacrifices to learn it. But when later in life, you don't sit there and say, okay, I need to remember that day. Nope. You take those memories, you merge them together and you realize that, you know, going to the gym at seven o'clock in the morning or five 30 in the morning for workouts yeah. sucked. Yep. Okay? It, it was awful. Or, you know, what we would do baseball played five days a week, right? You, yep. you play Thursday night, Wednesday, you know, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And if you were in town, you, you didn't have to travel on Thursday um, or Sunday night. And you would, you, you would mix that and you, they would always say Monday was off, but Monday was never off. Monday was either catching up <laughs> right. or you were at the ballpark fixing the problems for yep. voluntary training. Um, and then there was a lot of times that we practiced all day, Tuesday and Wednesday before we had a game on Tuesday and Wednesday night. Yep. And so it was one of those things where it was great. I miss being in that level of shape. Yeah. Uh, I'm not nearly as good a shape as you are, but I, I, I miss that. I miss the, the feeling of putting on a pair of jeans and, and, you know, going, yeah, damn, I look good in these. <laughs> you know? And yeah. I, I miss, I miss the college days of, Hey, look, I'm gonna go play ball. But at the end of the day, it's also who's got the best party going on tonight that we can go to. And, yeah. and I'll skip that marketing class. That's right. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Th- that was fun. Yeah. That part I enjoyed. That's great. That's great. So while you're at LSU, Brett, you, uh, you have another important moment. You meet, uh, you know, a gal that ends up becoming your wife. And yep. so you stick around LSU post playing. Uh, and then you head off to Brown for a pretty pre- prestigious, you know, internship. 
and uh, and that kind of starts you into your professional career. So talk a little bit about that and you know how that led you to uh, you know your first career. Well, there was a couple things that happened when I finished at LSU. I wanted to go into psychology. That was a late change for me. Yeah. Um, I, I was very fortunate to have a professor there. My coach's daughter was a graduate student there. Um, it's very difficult to get into graduate programs. They all tell you they don't want you to come in um, to the program you did your undergrad. But my coach's daughter, who who has since passed away, but was just an amazing human being, um, she was a very strong mentor of mine, and she she overlooked for me. She was a guide for me. She she mm -hmm. she took care of me, and she made sure I got connected with a professor who would be a match for me. And and I worked with him for about two and a half years. And then, but in the very second week of grad school, we were, our, um, our, our externship is how we made our, our money was through his grant. Okay. And his grant got canceled because it was a externally funded grant through the army and the army already had the results they needed. And they decided they got, they got what they needed and they were done. Got it. So he had six or seven graduate students that had no funding. And so um, the university figured out a way and I, I got reassigned to a different professor and um, that professor just sent a message to me and the other colleague and said, Hey, look, I'll be in touch. I was like, okay. So that next Monday I pick up the phone and I called and I said, Hey, I know you said you'd be in touch, but you're paying for my salary. Right. What can I do to help? And yeah. he said, you know, I was waiting for one of you guys to call. That's awesome. And it was kind of a test. And that, that's probably my dad in me and my mom in me to say, look, don't, don't take anything. Grand. The other student didn't show up all semester. Um, but I, that guy ended up becoming my major professor and he was a challenging teacher. Mm -hmm. He was really difficult, but he, he trained really good students and really competitive. And when it was getting time for me to go on internship, which is our residency, he um, went to, there was a, a conference we go to in grad school and, and with professors and they have these internship parties where you can mingle and meet. And he said, give me a little bit. I'll be right back. And he comes out and goes, okay, I got somebody I want you to talk to. Yeah. And he connected me to the program chair. who was a young guy who was a headache specialist. I liked chronic pain management. And got it. Um, we sat down and started talking. And Justin Nash became my mentor. And it's probably the top internship in my field. Um, and, and, uh, you know, obviously I wanted to go there and you don't know until the match comes in. And, and yeah. I had a pretty good idea I was going there, but to go there was amazing, but also to, to have Justin on my side. I, I don't have a relationship with my former professor anymore because he wanted me to go into academics. I wanted to go into business. I think if I called him, we would resolve it now. In fact, we've kind of messaged a little bit behind the scenes, Yeah. but Justin is my mentor and he sat down with me when I got up there and he said, you're not like the other students. You don't want to do academics. You have some wild harebrained ideas, but I'm a, I'm going to help you. And, yeah. and he is my mentor today. And he's the guy I go to whenever I need something. And, you know, he, he brought me in to give a couple talks and he said, you know, I used to think about Brett's like, Oh my gosh, I don't know if Brett can do this. And now I go, how can I do it like Brett? Yeah. And, right. uh, and, you know, he's like, I can't imagine taking the guts that you did to do what you did. And, and here we are. That's so and cool. so, you know, you talk about, you know, serendipitous moments and things like that. I mean, yeah. my professor, Phil Brantley down in Baton Rouge, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll remend those fences when I'm ready. I'm not there yet. Yeah. Um, but he's an amazing professor and I wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't for him taking over my grant. Yeah. And um, he, he made me better. Uh, he made me better with a lot of sleepless nights, but that's <laughs> exactly what I needed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't begrudge anything that he did. In fact, I'm very thankful. Um, but, you know, I think the, the Justin Nash was great. And then, um, you know, just some things happened and, you know, I, I've been very fortunate to be in some good settings. Um, I, you know, I, I've got a lot of amazing people I work with, but they're amazing, not because of me, but because they're amazing. Mm. I'm just one very small grain of sand in their life. Absolutely. So, as you finish that up, you, you go into, uh, I believe, pharmaceuticals first, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. And from pharmaceuticals, you, you did that for quite a while, but then you guys end up moving and you, you've always kind of had that itch to be in the sports world and training mm -hmm. there. So how did that transition come from pharmaceuticals to starting to work with the athletic realm? Well, when you think about, once again, kind of the serendipitous thing, right? So. Yeah. 
we moved to Pennsylvania. Um, I, my aunt was an executive admin for the president of Merck Research Laboratories. Oh, got it. Yeah. And I did not want to go. This was after 9-11. I did not want to go into academics. I did not want to be a fellow. We had two kids. My wife was working all the time. I wanted a better life. Um, I didn't want to write my own grants to pay for my salary. Right. I'd rather, I would rather hustle than wait for some review committee. Yep. Um, plus I wasn't that good at research. And, um, so we, I took a job with Merck doing research. Um, the drug I was working on was starting to maybe not make it. You can kind of read between the lines. Yeah. And I, I was homesick for the Southeast. So I wanted to take a job back in the Southeast. And, and so I went out in the field with a company. The company was in the first, you know, stages of a drug. First year had already been launched. Got very fortunate um, to do that. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I mean, it was, it was, it was a really perfect timing type of thing yeah. and joined a club, a golf club down here in Birmingham and worked in the field for seven or eight years, had an amazing manager who allowed me to, to moonlight. The cool thing is in the state of Alabama, I did not need postdoctoral hours to get licensed as a psychologist. Okay. So in most places you need to have two years of supervision. Now I'm not going to say this from an arrogant way. My professor, my, my undergraduate or my graduate school professor treated us like we were med students. Yep. So we worked 14 hour days. We had, we would fudge the number of hours that we had because we, if we put the true number of hours, people would be, um, they would look at us bad because we had too many direct patient care hours. Yes. But his idea was, I don't care. You're going to get the best training. Yep. So I had more hours than I actually needed for a postdoc. Got it. But when I moved to Alabama, I was in Philadelphia. If I got licensed in the state of Pennsylvania, I would have had to have two years of somebody supervising me and paying and working and all this other stuff. So I, I was very fortunate. I moved to Alabama and I was like, well, wait a minute. I don't need to have any postdoctoral hours. Yeah. So I got licensed. And now it's funny. If you're listening to this, you're like, well, Alabama, that's not, well, Alabama has also the lowest malpractice rate in the country. Okay. Um, and so they do it right here and they understand what's important. It's not really a eat your own type of thing and they have a really good structure. So anyway, I get licensed and as a clinical psychologist and that way you can call yourself a psychologist. You can't call yourself a psychologist unless you're licensed. Got it. Um, and so that was a big deal to me. So, yeah. you know, done all that work is like, I want to be able to refer to myself that way. And then I had a, a golf pro. I was at the club that was teaching somebody and said, Hey, look, would you help this person out? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then that just kind of grew. And you know, that's how it grew within the golf world. And from that, uh, university of Alabama found me on Google. Um, you so know, I want to, I want to pump into that for a second. Cause as I, I understand it, Graham McDowell reaches out to you through a coach. Yeah. Through a coach. Yeah. And so is that kind of the first PGA uh, player that you work with? Yeah, that was, that was active. Um, yeah. You know, I'd had a couple, I'd had one or two people had reached out to me that were local who their careers were way over. And, but you know, you're, you're in those last ditch efforts type of thing. And um, which I don't blame them. I'd be doing the same thing too. Yeah. But Eric Eshelman, who's the um, director of golf at Birmingham country club, which is the prestige, one of the most prestigious ones in the Birmingham area. In fact, Eric was the PGA in, um, professional of the year in 2019 in, wow. you know, in the country. He, I'd worked with a couple of students. He's just a human, just a, just a stellar human being. Yeah. And I, I'd always seen him as like a mentor and we would meet and I was young. I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was kind of new to the area and it was kind of a new field. And um, he called and he said, I can remember where I was. I was walking into a books a million and he called me and he said, Hey, um, I've got a client for you if you're into it. And I was like, yeah, sure. Who is it? And he said, it's Graham McDowell. He said, I taught Graham when he was in college. We've stayed very close ever since. Yeah. He said, Graham is really struggling. He had just won the U S open about 18 months prior. And he, um, you know, he, he's, he needs some help. And I'm like, I mean, I, you know, he's just give him what you got. Yeah. And, uh, he called, we talked the next day and, uh, I went over to the Atlanta athletic club and met with him on a Monday at the PGA championship, way fish out of water, um, way out of my element. I mean, I had to go get clothes 
on Sunday. I mean, it was funny. Um, yeah. You know, I was trying to look the part type of thing. I didn't know what people wore out there. I mean, hell, I almost wore shorts out there. Um, I didn't know. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I went out there and I met, you know, I got to be around some really great player. I mean, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and I, it was fortunate, but it didn't, it didn't spark right then. I worked with him a couple of times and then he'd reach out to me every once in a while. And, but he would really move on and then, um, he'd come back around. And then I helped out, um, you know, somebody else and that somebody else had a tour player and I helped that tour player. And then all of a sudden Graham would come back around. And, and so it just was, you know, there was a time when I had one player on tour and now it's 12 to 15 and, yeah. um, and, you know, I'll probably get down to one again at some point. Right. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it's, uh, there's a lot of very good luck there and, um, I'm very, I'm very, uh, respectful of the trust that these guys and, and the ladies I work with on the LPGA tour that they've yeah. given me, uh, it, it's, it's a hell of a lot of trust with, um, it's a lot of vulnerability to do that. Absolutely. So a question I have just in that line of work that you're doing there, you know, obviously golf is probably the toughest mental sport, right? I mean, every sport is really hard from a mental standpoint, but you know, golf, it's, it's really just you, you and you, right. Uh, there's no, no blaming someone else. Well, I guess at least not a competitor. It's just me versus me, but from a mentality standpoint, you know, after something, whether it's a bad hole or it's a uh, bad round, uh, bad tournament, you know, what are some of the things you do to correct that and really try and shift the mindset back to, we can do this, you know, let's, let's get back in the, the confidence mindset. I, I, I said something a while back and I, and I think it's kind of true is that um, golfers, professional golfers are very much like uh, supermodels. They're on the runway. They're fully exposed. They don't have as much confidence as they portray. Yeah. They're very fragile and they have to be any athlete that's out there. That's overly confident. is going to get eaten up by the game. Right. That lack of confidence creates an edge and that edge creates effort and work and that work develops growth. The, the thing about them being mentally in is that they all go into it thinking that they're going to play well, and then they get slapped across the face. Right. But it's those that can stand up to the slap and keep coming back and believe in who they are and believe to take the next shot and to put themselves out there and be exposed. The, the more playing golf is like skiing a black diamond in, in Colorado. If you get on your heels, you're going to go down. You, yep. you got to lean into it and you've got to get over the front of your skis. And um, that's where the most vulnerability is because it makes no sense. Right. And, it, it just is one of those things where as an athlete, you do everything you can. And then the game just eats you up and spits you out. And, and PGA tour players win 80% of their money in five events a year. Yeah. Um, and we see guys up at the top and we, then they fall back and we forget that they, you know, we're up at the top on a Saturday and they're not there on a Sunday because it got really hard. And one of my players, we've had long conversations about how much can you put yourself in that position? And I have had to remind them, Hey, listen, remember, we said about 30% of the time you get yourself in position, you're going to piss the bed. Yeah. And when he does, he's like, oh, and he's like, you're right. You're right. And then three weeks later, he gets in that position again and he surges up the leaderboard. And so that's the hard thing is staying with that attitude of showing up. Golf has one thing that's a little easy is that you can have a terrible week last week. They move to a new city. It starts fresh and it all starts over again on Thursday. There's no carryover. Right. We may look at guys that are on streaks, but they, they rarely stay on long-term streaks. Yep. No, oh, that's great. So then you were mentioning, and, and I wanted to make sure we talked about the golf first before we moved on to this, but then, yeah. So University of Alabama men's basketball team Googles you, finds you and reaches out to you. And uh, you, you get the opportunity to start working with them and they end up making the national tournament that year. So talk a little bit about how, you know, navigating and working with uh, the university has kind of come about. Yeah, it was kind of a joke. I mean, it, we, we, my wife and I had gone to exercise that morning. And when I left the pharmaceutical company, my dad got sick. Um, he had been sick for a couple of years and he passed away in September. And we would go exercise every morning because I didn't have a full client load, but I had enough money doing consulting back with the pharmaceutical that we were okay. okay. And uh, we, um, we'd go exercise and we'd come back and we'd eat a late breakfast. And I would work for a while, maybe see a client or two. And then, 
you know, go from there. And I'm sitting at the desk at the kitchen table one day working and I get this email that it was almost, it almost looked like spam. It was so poorly written by the trainer. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, obviously he had, uh, um, you know, it was really one of those things of, you know, and so I emailed back and I was like, yeah, I almost, I was like, I almost took the bait. Like, okay, yeah, I'm interested. Yeah. You know? And he's like, call me. So, all right. so I called the trainer and he's a great dude and he's not the trainer anymore. He retired, but I'm like, Hey, what's up? Oh, we're looking for somebody, whatever. And we talk and I said, this is what I did. I played at LSU bow. And he's like, okay, listen, when can you come on over? I mean, we didn't talk finances. We didn't talk anything. And, yeah. and, um, so I go over there and coach is like, look, I want you to watch some practice. I'm like, okay, that's cool. So I met with coach and, uh, watch practice the team didn't know who I was. So he said, look, I want you to go to the SEC tournament. I think I went to a, I went to a game. Yeah. I went to a game at Coleman Coliseum, sat on the bench. They didn't have a clue who I was. Yeah. <laughs> was in the locker room. They didn't have a clue who I was. None of the assistant coaches knew who I was. <laughs> okay. So he, the thing was supposed to be said is I wanted like an auction or something. Yeah. And <laughs> so, so funny because coach wanted to see how his assistant coaches interacted. Mm. And so, um, that's so funny now that I think about it. And so we go to the SEC tournament and I'm on the bus, I'm on the airplane. They don't have a freaking clue who I am. Okay. <laughs> and that night at dinner, coach is like, okay, guys, listen, here's who we're going to have here. And we're talking and, and they, we did okay at the SEC tournament. We won one, lost one. I think we lost to Kentucky or something. It was a really close game and spent the night down there the next day. And I started spending some time with some of the guys and some of the assistant coaches. And that was really cool. Yeah. And then he calls and says, we want you to go with us to the NCAA tournament. I was like, oh, hell yeah. Yeah, right. So we go to Greensboro and uh, we go and, and, and I would put together videos for him. And what I didn't realize is that coach wanted videos with their highlights in, a, in addition to my messages. I didn't have access to their library. So I would give him a video and he's like, sweet. And so what happened was we'd have a couple of practices. We had two days of practice, whatever. And and then going into the night of the first game, we're sitting, now this was in New Orleans. We were sitting there after the first win, after the first victory. And I get another video in, I had a video guy on my team and, and at the time. And, and so we get a video in and they're like, okay, bring it up to the suite. And I'm sitting up at the suite with the video guy and their assistant coach, John Brandon. And it was like two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. I'm still in there working with him. I'm getting the pieces and John's like, you're not like most guys. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm all in, man. I mean, this is what I do. I love this stuff, man. This is the greatest thing in the world. And we're sitting there eating M&Ms together. And, we, he, and I still work with John at the University okay. of Cincinnati. And so he's like, you know, I tell that story all the time. And, uh, and uh, he, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was just a really cool thing. And we had a really nice time. And, and then I just kind of developed it. And over the summer, I got a text message from um, the, um, I got a text, a text message from the university's athletic department, the head athletic trainer, and the one that was in charge of mental health. And she said, come on in. We don't want anybody to do anything with football. I'm like, that's fine. And, and then I went in, they just started sending me some players. I think the first person I saw was a cheerleader. And then it was a tennis girl. And I just would provide information. And that just kind of grew. Yeah. And, and now you work with everything, right? Yep. Yep. That's so all sports. That's so phenomenal. Yep. All sports. So a question I want to talk to you about and really ask you on, um, and it's something that you talk a fair amount, and that is, you know, motivation changes over time. Yep. And, and so, you know, I, I think that's such a great point because especially for high achievers, right, which I would, I would categorize yourself as, it's like, all right, I hit this goal, but, but now I want the next thing. And so we're yep. constantly kind of progressing and growing towards that. So how for you, do you manage that? And how does that motivation changing, you know, play into your life and to, in, you know, the athletes you work with? I mean, I, I, I think if you talk to anybody who's in my inner circle, you tell you that I probably lose my attitude quite often. Um, it, it, there's a lot to be said. There's a lot for um, putting everything out there. I mean, I live and die for my athletes. Um, if I have an athlete that's doing well and then doesn't get it done, then I, I take it personally and I really shouldn't, but I do, I worry about them. I worry about them at night. I mean, I've got a couple texts and that's why we're doing this call right now. And, um, 
you know, and, and, you know, my thing is I'm like, Oh yeah, let me get to that. I'm, I, I tell my athletes and any of my athletes, I'm around 24 seven. And it's true. I've stepped out of birthday parties for my wife, for a player to win. I've, yeah. um, you know, I, and, and my, my family knows that it does come to a toll because I don't know when to say no. And I also don't know, I know how to put up boundaries, mm-hmm. but I don't know when to say no. I don't know when to turn off for me. I, I didn't do clinical work after I finished because I couldn't turn that off. Right. If somebody was in and they were suffering, I lived it. Um, I, uh, I, I worried about him I worried about him pretty, pretty intensely. I still worry about my players, not for the same reasons. I want them, they're investing a lot of money in me and whether I'm doing a business presentation, um, I'm doing coaching, I'm helping an organization maximize their organization. I am going to really be sick about it because I want to do the job. Um, I, I feel better with the ball in my hands. Mm-hmm. but there's a lot in this that I don't have in my hand. Right. And so that's the hard thing. If I'm, if I'm with somebody and I got my hands with them, never put my hands on, but you get my point. I'm in yeah, that. Right, right. I'm okay. Yep. Before I go out on tour every week, I've got to go to the players this week. I, you know, I'm not saying I'm dreading it, but there's a anxiety that comes with it because yeah. there's a lot of um, people. Uh, I would say there's a lot of ego. It's not ego. It, there's a lot of, what they need to get ready for the players. And I want to make sure that I have fulfilled what I needed to do. And I over fulfilled it mm-hmm. so that when they leave the golf course on Wednesday and they show up on Thursday, they are lock stock and ready to go. Yep. I don't ever want them to go. Oh God, if Brett had just, you know, where the hell was Brett? I, I mean, I didn't see him. Right. He's here. Yeah. Okay. That drives me crazy. So I worry about it. And when I was in the pharmaceutical industry, I got asked one night to give a talk to, night nurses and we did a a, a 10 p.m a 2 a.m and a 5 a.m and i did it and i give the sales rep a ton of credit for doing it but she's like i've never worked with somebody who would do it. i'm like why wouldn't i if i'm on the road i'm gonna work yeah so right. i will meet my players at 5 a.m and stay out till midnight with them and you know just seeing them lined up one after the other but i they don't they know i have other clients yeah. but i don't want them to think that they were ever chosen differently. Yes. And so those are the anxieties that I have. And, you know, I, I, if I don't have players there, I get anxious because I don't have players there. If I have too many there, I get anxious. So I've just learned to accept my own anxiety and, and I've battled anxiety my entire life. I think it helps me pay attention, Yeah. Um, but it also wears on me. And so what wears on me is the, the, the angst, the, the, you know, after we finish this call, I'll have probably four hours of phone calls tonight with players. Yep. Um, and that's cool. The problem is I'll start tomorrow morning at five right, and, right. you know, I'll go again. And, and so it, it's come at the risk. My wife is very strong on, we've got to, we just moved into a new house, but she's, um, she's very strong on the fact of um, we've got to slow down in some aspects of life because you, you, you end up ignoring some of the things in your life that you need to do, yep. but you know, my, my buddies I play golf with on Saturday and Sunday morning will tell you if I have a player in contention, I'm on my phone the entire time yep. um, because I'm there. You know, if I've got a player who's racing in a tournament, um, I'm the same thing. I just, I can't turn it off. So I would say my motivation is high. Yeah. It's not about the quality. It's not like I'm saying, oh, I don't, I don't want to work with Tiger. That has nothing to do with that. I don't right. I hate to say it. it doesn't matter where you play and who you are. We all fight the game the same way. Yep. I don't have it. it if I can help a guy, if I can help a young lady who is at X position in their life for the first time and they find it, that's the same as somebody who's won their seventh major. Like to me, you know, I love working for Alabama. Um, you know, it's, it's a brilliant uh, place to work for the football program, but it's about the individual stories of a Mac Jones who, who finds his power and finds his process. You know, I'm not going to say they would win without Mac. I don't think they would have this year because I think Mac had one of the best years ever as a college quarterback. Yeah. But to see a young man who um, came into our program as a freshman unheralded behind Tua, behind um, Jalen Hurts, and really not thought of very highly by anybody outside the program. Now, inside the program – we thought very highly of him outside the program. People thought he was just going to be a field goal holder for the rest of his career. Right. <laughs> right. Um, 
And, um, you know, I think it's one of those things of, you know, I love to see somebody become what they are. Yeah. And that is cool to me. That's amazing. Well, very good, Brett. Well, I appreciate the time today and uh, you sharing, you, you know, the details of your story of what a fascinating story. And uh, we'll look forward to following up in the future. Thanks for having me. And thanks for allowing me to share my story. I loved Brett's takeaways. Brett does such a phenomenal job of correlating what he learned as a collegiate athlete into his professional career. I would encourage you to keep taking risks and also check out uh, Brett's different books, The Mindset, Mindside Manifesto, and then also The Game Plan. I've included the link below so you can order those. I hope you guys have a great day.